Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You are joined, as always, by Melbourne writers Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, Zara McDonald, and hello, producer Annabelle Lee. Hello. Hi. Coming up on today's show, we have quite a few updates about the Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas divorce. Jimmy Fallon is the latest talk show host to be outed as a terrible boss. The video going viral after the VMAs, and finally, we do a massive deep dive on everything there is to know about Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis asking a judge for leniency after their friend was found guilty of raping two women. There is so much to cover there. So, so, so much. It might be our longest segment ever. So we've had to decide to do a shorter, quick and dirty, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, Michelle, how are you? How was your week? How are we doing? I am... Great. I am grand. I have spent all week listening to Olivia Rodrigo's Guts, which I know is quite a mediocre recommendation from me because it feels like everyone is already listening to this album. But I do recommend the listeners, if they haven't already, stream Guts by Olivia Rodrigo. (laughs) She definitely needs the attention. Perhaps not the strongest rec, but I will take it because I'm enjoying it as well. Such a niche little album. I think we're all loving it. What are our favourite songs? Get Him Back. Get Him Back. Get Him Back. Definitely. The thing about it, though, is I'm not a huge fan of the verses. Oh, just love the chorus because it's way boppier. Like she sort of talks <laughs> She's her way through the verses. Yeah, but the chorus is so boppy. I mean, I'm not a particularly good music listener in that new music. I just have to kind of wait until the music reaches me by osmosis and I work out what I like. Zara needs to be surrounded by it, so we're just going to play it in the office 24 seven. But I have been listening to it. Good. I've been I've been changing my behaviour, and I really love Olivia Rodrigo. I love her so much. You also love. Love Get Him Back, Annabelle yes, Lee. Yes, Lacey is another Lacey one. Lacey is in my top five. Vampire still is in my top three, I'd I say. love Vampire. Yeah. yeah, I just love the whole thing. I think it's an awesome album and it feels so nostalgic. It's got like all the Paramore vibes that I used to love when I was a teenager. So I'm just obsessed with it. Yeah, a bit of punk rock. bit of punk rock. According to Billboard, by the way, this album is currently outselling the remaining top 10 albums combined. Yeah, crazy. So this is going to be one of the biggest music releases of the year, which is a surprise to no one. But I feel like for such a young woman, she's only 20 years old. The stakes were so high for her to back up her first album. And I, I just feel really proud and impressed that she's done it. I sort of feel like she falls into a brand of celebrity (laughs) of which I would kind of title the normie celeb in that I, I, <laughs> if I met them, I would consider them to be quite normal. And I don't have them in this sort of like, you're in an ivory tower, you're so far away from me. Other people, if I may, <laughs> that fall into this brand of celebrity because neither of you are sold on this. I don't agree, but yes. Paul Meskel, do a leaper. People Dua. that do are because Dua still has all her high school friends. People that are still <laughs> kind of normal and still not too far away from us, but still A-list famous. You've floated this on the podcast before. Have I? I think you're completely <laughs> forgetting we've had this exact conversation Normies. and you argued for Dua Lipa and, and you what brought did up I the call high this concept back <laughs> then because I need a better name for it. I think it was Normie Celebs. Okay, Look, so then let me go back to the start. Olivia Rodrigo falls into that category. I agree. Okay. I think we might just be falling for the fact that she's young. No, she could be a su- friend. Yeah. I've been watching <laughs> You a lot guys of- are suckers for PR. She could be. <laughs> I saw her announce the album at this Spotify sort of event and she seemed really nervous and normal and just like how I would be. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I'd love to be Olivia Rodrigo's friend. I would love that. I just... I feel like she's such an A-lister these days. You wouldn't even get close to her. She would have a whole entourage of people. But that's the In whole... what setting are you meeting Olivia and becoming friends with her? That's the whole point. It's the illusion of intimacy <laughs> mm. that you have with these people, not the reality. Okay. I think Olivia Rodrigo is one of them. And so does Annabelle. Yeah, I agree with you, What about you? How are you? I am very happy to be back with you both. I tell you what, it is nice to be back in the studio. I missed you both last week. I we missed you both missed for you. the last couple of weeks. Ten days without Zaz is far it's too, many, too many, many No, no, you guys, you did amazing. And your interview with Stephen Bartlett went live on Monday, which was amazing. And our listeners are loving it. And I'm so excited for them to hear the other content that's coming. I have to say very quickly, I was inundated with messages after our recording a couple of weeks ago. And I haven't been able to reply to 
anyone really because it's it's a lot to get back to people. But I wanted to say thank you because it is so kind for people to message. And I think one thing we've been talking about a lot, I feel like between you and I, Mish, particularly over the last month or so, is how much it means to send someone a message when things are hard. Yeah. And I think it just reminded me as people messaged me and I wasn't able to get back to them that I think when things are hard for people generally, we can kind of sit back a bit as friends or family and be like, I don't know what to do. And you put so much pressure on yourself to have the perfect response, to Mm. cook the perfect meal that isn't the 17th lasagna or Mm. to maybe not buy a bunch of flowers because they'll run out of vases. If there's one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in the last few weeks is be like the 17th bunch of flowers even if they've run out of vases or like don't put too much pressure on yourself to have a perfect response because often a message is just enough even if people don't get back to you and I know this might sound a bit preach yourself indulgent but I thought if people are listening to this and they're like sitting there and they feel like someone in their life is going through something and they don't know what to do, just literally text them and say, I love you. Yeah. Even if they don't reply, I can guarantee it means a lot. Even if they give you nothing in response, I can guarantee it means the world. Because I think the worst thing we can do is make people feel lonely when they're sad. Yeah. And I think the worst thing we can do is get stuck in a state of, well, I don't know what to say, so I won't say anything. When it's like, well, I think so much of the comfort, I mean, I'm speaking for you, comes from just seeing someone's name pop up on your phone. Totally, It's not even the message. It's the act of sending the message that matters. Totally. And I think I wanted to say that because I wasn't able to get back to so many people that strangers who messaged me, which was so kind to take time out of their day. Yeah, And I don't think you can ever underestimate how important that is. So I don't know if you're on your phone right now and you want to send someone a message, do it. Is I'll that- take a message. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing all right, but I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> send anyone a message. Send the messages. But that's what I wanted to say today because it's been on my mind. And you're feeling a little better. I am feeling a little, a little bit better since the last time we spoke. Still a little bit of a way to go. Yeah. I was very grateful to be in Melbourne, truthfully, over the last few weeks and not in London. It was yeah. certainly the decision that gave me a lot of peace of mind. So thank you for allowing me to do that. We missed you so much. I can't even say the number of times we were like fuck we wish Sarah was here but I'm glad for you as well that you were back here where you needed to be yeah and we'll go somewhere else (laughs) oh my god plan another one (laughs) if we need an excuse to go overseas again We'll there it is. It. <laughs> World domination, baby. <laughs> what it has meant, though, is I've consumed quite a bit of content in the last couple of weeks, but I'm only going to give you, I'm going to probably repeat it out. Um, because, <laughs> oh, you mean more than just Olivia Rodrigo's album? Yes. <laughs> I have, I listened to an audiobook actually, over the last week. It is called The End Credits by Patty Lynn. Now, on our rec wrap, I actually recommended an excerpt of her book, which was published in Time magazine, which was about her time as a writer on Friends. Patty Lynn is a former TV writer, and I posted that on our Instagram on Shameless Podcast. And a lot of people really liked the article, and it was sort of about how when your dream job is not your dream job. Patty Lynn worked across so many other TV shows like Breaking Bad, Desperate Housewives. Oh, my God, what a CV. And hated it. Hated it. Sad CV. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a a good. Yeah, uh, sure. (laughs) Sad CV sounds so. Sad CV. But she writes about this stuff in a way that I had never considered the behind the scenes of the TV industry. I would always consider being a TV writer quite a glamorous job. I look Mm. on as someone in the media industry myself, thinking, God, how amazing would it be to be in a writer's room? But her experience was not that fabulous, and she's written a memoir all about. It And I really, really think you guys would adore it. It's really fascinating because normally reading a memoir of someone you don't know who's actually also not famous is a hard ask, I would say. But because she worked in TV and so many recognisable shows, there's so many tidbits of celebrities. Oh, I love that. Scattered through. That's cool. Stunning. Delicious. (laughs) It is a bit, I guess. (laughs) I used to have a massive crush on... um, Jason Siegel as well. Oh, you would. And you I did. Sorry, would you? Well, Wait. it was only listening to the audiobook that I was like, oh, he's pretty sexy. This is so weird. I was just stalking Jason Siegel on Wikipedia yesterday oh. because I've been rewatching How I Met Your Mother oh, no way. season two and three. And I was like, what's going on in Jason Siegel's <laughs> life? He's not married. No, he, he's, <laughs> he actually ended his long-term relationship about a year or two ago. Did you read that too? Yeah, I read up on everything about Jason yeah, I was like, surely Jason Siegel has kids, has a big family. No, Bachelor. So you guys would date Jason Siegel? Oh, yeah. Without a shadow sweetie. of a doubt if I wasn't with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. And then, Jason, hello. No, but I wasn't. I had never thought about Jason Siegel until Patty Lynn sort of had this thing for him and she thought he had this thing for her and I was like, oh my God, yes. Did they get together? I can't spoil it. Oh. oh. But they didn't. Oh. 
Anyway, it is sad CV. <laughs> sad, sad CV. Sad single. <laughs> Guys, you would actually adore this book, so either read it or get it in your ears as an audiobook. I couldn't recommend it more. Obsessed with that. Guys, before we get into the episode, we want to be really clear with the listeners. There are some pretty deep and some semi-dark stories that we are going to be talking about today. We were looking at the story options we had and we thought, where is the lightness? Where is the silliness? And then it came to us, why don't we create the lightness and the silliness and bring back an old favourite of ours that I don't know why we let die. We used to do a game with the listeners where the listeners would call in and tell us about their unhinged celebrity run-ins. What were your favourites back in the day, Zara McDonald? There was a gondola ride. Oh, I want a fucking gondola oh, ride. Gondola ride. <laughs> there was a celebrity that kicked the dog. That's my favourite. <laughs> Which we don't like dog kicking, but it was obviously it was yes. an interesting moment on the show <laughs> because lots of people were very invested. Yeah, I mean, I still I still think it would be one of the more common questions listeners would ask me on the street. The number of drunk listeners who have come up to me and said. Who was the TV host who kicked the dog? I'm like, honey, that is, that's staying in the same. <laughs> so we thought, let's bring it back. And we have one today. And I'm not even going to introduce it. Can we just play this thing? Yeah, this is Ruby's unhinged celebrity run-in story. I was at House Festival in London, which is like a fancy music festival in West London. And me and my friend saw And we went up to him, we were quite young, and we were like, hey, um, can we please get a photo with you? And he literally goes, fuck off! <laughs> and he runs away, and he's, like, running while his wife chases him. Now, <laughs> the thing about this is these are obviously beeped for obvious reasons. <laughs> fuck off! Fuck off. All I think I have to say is put yourself in London. What celebrity is going to yell at you to fuck off? That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. It's on brand. It's on it's brand. On brand. I packed myself when this came through. Thank you, Ruby. It brightened our office day, didn't it? It did, absolutely. If you want to send us your unhinged celebrity run-in story, we will pop a link in the show notes. We won't do them every week, but we will do them when a particularly unhinged one comes in. Yeah, when a perfect one comes in, we'll be playing it, so make sure they're perfect. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Uh, shall we jump straight into the quick and dirty? We've only got three stories today because we've got so much time to spend on Ashton and Miller. Yeah, let's so, do it. Michelle... Michelle. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that nervous laugh. What was that laugh? I've never heard that I don't know laugh. what I did. I can't I remember it. it. I love it. I blacked out. Sad TV, Andrews. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't think any of us do. What have you got for me? My first story, Sophie Turner, Joe Jonas, and why the court of public opinion matters in celebrity divorces. That is from today. Guys, since we spoke to you last week, Sophie Turner has issued a very brief statement on Instagram. She actually published this hours after we recorded. So we looked at it and we were like, oh, God, like we just did the episode, but we thought we would include it here anyway. It was very, very brief. It didn't say much. She essentially wrote on behalf of her and Joe and said, we have mutually decided to amicably end our marriage. There are many speculative narratives as to why, but truly this is a united decision and we sincerely hope that everyone can respect our wishes for privacy for us and our children. I don't believe the crux of that statement for a second, but I can understand why Sophie Turner felt compelled to share it. Totally. I think that's completely fair. And then after this statement was released, it felt very much that the Joe Jonas press leakings weren't stopping, right? And and dare I say, straight after the statement came out, we got the biggest and most random story of all. Like <sighs> This is just like so spectacularly specific. Late last week, TMZ dropped this. Ring camera video slash audio was linchpin to divorce. The piece opened. Joe Jonas saw slash heard. TMZ need to pick what word they want to use. <laughs> <laughs> saw and heard? Just saw? Just heard? Something with Sophie Turner that was the last straw in his decision to file for divorce. And it involves a ring camera. Multiple sources who have direct contact with Joe tell TMZ Joe had access to a ring cam that he said captured Sophie saying and or doing something <laughs> that made him realise the marriage was over. Can I clarify? You a ring camera. 
That's like a home security camera? I had to Google this, so I don't think that's a bad thing to check in on. Some people said, yeah, it's sort of like home CCTV. Some people said it could be some version of like a baby monitor. Okay. I don't know. I've heard uh. lots of different things. Because everyone's saying not just camera, ring camera. I'm like, this must be an American or UK thing because I've never heard that back here. This story is so irritating to me because, again, it feels like a leak from Joe Jonas's camp. It's infuriating. It's infuriating that this is the narrative that he's pushing. I actually don't even care what he saw on the ring camera, if he saw anything at all. Yeah, and I think it's one of those stories that actually invites you to speculate more than you need to. If anything, the kind of thing to do, if this even happened, would be to say what actually happened. Because Mm. what it does instead is make people imagine a whole world of possibilities that might arguably be far worse. Your mind jumps to worst case scenario. Yeah, exactly. Around the same time as this story leaked, it appears his team spoke to Page Six and said he never wanted to break up his family, but he had to take what he felt was the best course of action for his girls. An unhappy home isn't a home. And the truth is that he and Sophie were going through it this year. He's really leaning in to the guy who was kind of pushed to the end and really didn't want to do this, the devoted father and family man who was forced here. Yeah, 100% agree. Finally, after Joe's team were really pushing this narrative for well over a week, Sophie's team entered the chat and it appears that they chose to go to TMZ. That might seem random from Sophie Turner, but I think because TMZ have been at the forefront of every celebrity story this year, it actually makes the most sense if you want mass reach. Here's what a source told TMZ. Sophie was struggling after the birth of her second child and Joe Jonas was, and I quote, less than supportive. So claims several sources who were around Joe after the birth. Our sources say after their youngest child was born a year ago, Sophie didn't want to leave their home. She didn't want to be photographed or go to events. Nevertheless, she attended several events with Joe, but at one specific event, several people who were there said Sophie made it clear she was uncomfortable and didn't want to be there. The article went on, our sources say Joe complained Sophie was MIA and felt she needed to get out more. I mean, a fascinating tidbit from Sophie's camp and I agree with you I do think going to TMZ is actually the smartest thing to do because what you often see with these kinds of narratives is one camp is leaking to one publication and so the other makes an ally out of another like a page six for example Mm. but if Joe Jonas has been running the press narrative with TMZ for so long why not take your leakings to TMZ as well and just confuse the fuck out of everybody Mm. like confuse everybody to be like did TMZ even know what they're talking about if they're running conflicting stories I mean last week you're running a story saying that all she wants to do is party and this week you're running a story saying all she wants to do is stay in then kind of the whole narrative gets muddled yeah it's like a really clever move and when the public I mean public opinion has so firmly been on Sophie's side this is the way to cement that even more I mean it's so surprising to me how emphatic the support of Sophie Turner has actually been like the public is so firmly on her side in this and I haven't really witnessed that kind of that division so clearly in another divorce story. Well, I just don't think I've seen such a terrible PR plan for um, anyone really in the last sort of year or two as is the PR plan for Joe Jonas after this divorce. I think they completely underestimated the adoration of Sophie Turner, but truthfully, so did I, but I'm not married to her. So (laughs) they they should have known. feels very much like he's hired some old hands in the PR industry because- I would argue this strategy might have worked 10 to 15 years ago, but it's just not going to work today when A, people are in love with Sophie Turner, B, she's British, which I yes. think helps. Yes. And, and we always talk about lovable celebrities who are Brits. Yeah, totally. And I, I think we know the story of her moving to the US for him. She's also young. She's 27. Mm. I think there's lots of factors in her favour. But it feels very much like they've completely underestimated everything. The media literacy of young people online now as well with TikTok. Like I think PR managers would be watching this and thinking, oh gosh, I don't think we probably accurately assessed how strong media literacy is for young people on TikTok right now because of the rise of, I think, Instagram accounts like Demore. Yeah, Mm. 100%. I think I agree with you. 10 or 15 years ago, this strategy from Joe Jonas's team would probably have worked. It would have been pulled off. But now, so much of my TikTok feed anyway is from experts in PR, experts in tabloid culture, 
cutting through totally and explaining how these things happen and my friends even I think have grown a lot in their media literacy over the last three years we can see through these really obvious PR strategies like Joe Jonas's and the way it's backfired has just been like a spectacle to watch and the thing is I remember thinking in the last week or two like I never had any intention of not liking Joe Jonas (laughs) (laughs) I don't really think about Joe Jonas he was sort of just set up to like succeed but it's like I didn't want to hate you all you've done is make me really despise the way I think you've gone about this Mm. I mean we haven't of course mentioned that over the weekend on Saturday night as well he took to the stage at his LA concert the Joe Bros had a concert they're on tour at the moment as you know (laughs) and he said it's been a crazy week I just want to say look if you don't hear it from these lips (laughs) don't believe it okay thank you everyone for your love and support me and my family love you guys I don't even know where to start with this quote I if you don't hear it from these lips it's like you're the one that's been speaking this entire time just through the press. But of course, he's going to go to his own devotees and say this in concert. Like, this is the one forum where I think that message would actually be received well right now. Yeah. So I think this is the one case of his PR team maybe getting something right. But even then, the way he's worded it is just so irritating again. I also don't think it's a coincidence that in the last week he was papped out and about with his children, him feeding them lunch or brunch or whatever it was. When we haven't seen those kids papped basically we don't since even they were know, born. Like one of their names. We don't even know the second born's name. I don't find it coincidental that he was papped out and about with them. And I can only imagine if that was set up, how irritated Sophie Turner would be given how private she is with those children. I love that you said if that was set up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to leave that there. (laughs) Our second story. Jimmy Fallon apologises to Tonight Show staff after toxic workplace allegations. That is from The Guardian. Well, Jimmy Fallon has reportedly apologised to staff on The Tonight Show after he was accused of fostering a toxic work environment by current and former staff. He sort of got on this Zoom call reportedly and said, it's embarrassing and I feel so bad. Sorry if I embarrassed you and your family and friends. He went on, I feel so bad. I can't even tell you. I want this show to be fun. It should be inclusive for everybody. It should be funny. It should be the best show, the best people. So you're probably wondering, well, what's so bad about it? What does he have to apologise for? Well, late last week, Rolling Stone published a pretty troubling report about the culture of The Tonight Show. They spoke to two current and 14 ex-employees. Every single person interviewed for the story requested anonymity out of fear of retaliation. I think the most fascinating part of the piece for me, though, was the fact that Rolling Stone claimed they had approached an additional 80 current and former employees, but not a single one, and this is a quote from the Rolling Stone piece, agreed to speak on the record or had positive things to say about working on The Tonight Show. Mm. So here you've got a collection of nearly 100 people who aren't vouching for the culture of this show. Not a single person will put their name to saying you're a decent guy. No. That is my worst nightmare. It's it's pretty troubling. Now, it also should be noted that Rolling Stone pointed out that nine showrunners have worked on The Tonight Show since Jimmy Fallon took over in 2014. So there's just been this revolving door of leadership that ex and current employees say have led to this extreme level of instability. Well, I mean, showrunners are essentially as senior as you can get, right, when it comes to late night talk shows or talk shows in general. To have one a year since 2014 is a pretty telling stat, I would say. Now, one former employee told Rolling Stone, nobody told Jimmy no. Everybody walked on eggshells, especially showrunners. You never knew which Jimmy you were going to get and when he was going to throw a hissy fit. Look how many showrunners went so quickly. We know they didn't last long. Yeah, another went on and spoke to Rolling Stone by saying, it was like, if Jimmy is in a bad mood, everyone's day is fucked. People wouldn't joke around in the office and they wouldn't stand around and talk to each other. I found this story fascinating to read after reading Patty Lynn's book Mm. or listening to Patty Lynn's book because the culture that was portrayed in this Rolling Stone piece was almost identical to the culture that she explained across multiple shows that she's worked on. Well, I actually want to talk to you about this, right? So if we look at the last three years, we've had Jimmy Fallon, James Corden and Ellen DeGeneres all outed in massive exposés as terrible bosses. And one thing I've kind of been thinking about over the last week is chicken or egg. Is this symptomatic of egomaniacs being 
attracted to the idea of being a late night or primetime TV talk show host. And when an egomaniac becomes the host of a show, they are, because they're an egomaniac, a terrible boss. Or are we looking at an industry where people aren't set up for success anyway? Is every television show, particularly talk shows, a place where terrible culture thrives? Because I feel like this isn't just about the individuals. Yes, of course, Jimmy Fallon needs to be held to account. But this feels like a systemic problem in the industry for talk shows. Like, I think it would be really well, reductive. Well, not even just talk shows, to be honest. Television. It, television. I think it's a bit of both. I think you're right. I think you're probably more drawn to this industry. I think an industry like TV does actually draw a bit more ego. And I think once that ego is stroked, that is how an egomaniac is born. Mm. But I do think from everything I've read anyway, that TV has a culture that is just horrendous. And I think when we're talking about culture, we're talking about how much is expected of people that are working in TV, how many hours these people are expected to write for and things like that. Like working through the night constantly and Mm. just these exorbitant days that a lot of us just couldn't handle. That's the culture of the entire industry. So I'm sure you put these two things together, the expectation that you work around the clock and having a boss who might be, I mean. A bit bit into themselves. A bit into themselves. (laughs) Yeah. What have you got? Like a perfect storm. It just feels like we hear this story. It's like Groundhog Day. Totally. Just a different face of it every year. And you sort of are now waiting for which other ones are going to pop up. And the question probably now feels like, well, who are the nice ones? Where are the good places to work? Are there any? I should note, though, Daily Mail did speak to four current employees who denied the report and they claimed that Jimmy Fallon has been encouraging to their careers. He is flexible with ideas. He even sends handwritten notes for birthdays. One producer who has been on the show for over two years described the environment as supportive, collaborative and that everybody is happy. They also said Jimmy Fallon goes above and beyond to make sure crew and celebrity guests are comfortable. Should be noted none of these people put their names to it either. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why did they get... Sorry. Why would you not... Is this like Jimmy's assistant or something? I don't know. I just found it very funny. It's Jimmy wearing a mask. (laughs) It's like Jimmy in a wig. Is Jimmy in the room with us? (laughs) The handwritten notes for birthdays. Like, why would you not want to put your face and name to that? I don't know if it's true. If you really want to come out and defend your boss, if it's true... I don't understand what the damaging factor is putting a name to it, but I just wanted to put it there. I mean, you mentioned before Ellen and how big the story around Ellen's culture was. And it'll be really interesting to see how this Jimmy Fallon story plays out compared to Ellen. Because I know that they had sort of different work setups and sort of different allegations, but the crux of them, I would argue, is kind of similar. Mm. Ellen had one current and 10 ex-employees go on the record, so a similar amount to Jimmy. I feel like this Jimmy Fallon story is not nearly making as big of a splash as the Ellen DeGeneres story, and I think that poses some pretty interesting questions about the people we're willing to bring down and the people we're happy to keep in their jobs. Yeah, I think as well it's a really interesting time given that it's the writer's strike. Totally. And Jimmy Fallon's show is not currently going to air. Yeah. It's in a lull. I wonder what's going to happen or what the reception will be when he comes back. Will it be something that we forget? Will it be something that we remember? Will his ratings suffer? I don't know. All I know is that I think the public might have a bit of fatigue from stories like this now because we've seen so many other high-profile talk show hosts go through it. Maybe these stories will be less sticky the more faces we see attached to them. Yeah, I agree with that. Our third story... No, Megan The Stallion and Justin Timberlake weren't fighting in that viral VMAs <laughs> video. She was excited, says Source. That is from people. <laughs> She's off. <laughs> Not quite what I thought excited looked like, but let's, no. let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Guys, the VMAs are happening as we record. And as we record, there's a video going quite viral over on Twitter, Zara. It's doing the rounds. It's of Megan The Stallion and Justin Timberlake backstage at the VMAs. And they're looking like they're having an argument. At least Megan looks like she's yelling at Justin Timberlake. Yeah, let me set the scene. And we'll obviously post this on socials as well. But like, it's as a hairstylist is doing Megan's hair and Justin Timberlake is walking past her and she kind of stops to lean forward towards him. And she's like pointing her finger at him. She's animated. She does look kind of unhappy. Mm. And then she kind of turns back to the stylist after Justin Timberlake has kept walking 
And I would say looks exasperated. I agree. I mean, I've got resting bitch face. So I can relate to Megan if she wasn't feeling the way she was looking. But she looks grumpy for sure. Naturally, the Twitter account Popcrave shared this with their followers and people were talking about this heaps over on socials. Within half an hour of Popcrave sharing this video, reps and sources were speaking to the media to clear it up. A source spoke to Variety and said there was zero fight between Megan and Justin and that they actually just want to meet. The quote went like this. He said, it's so nice to meet you. And she said, no, no, this don't count. This don't count. We got to meet proper. Yeah, a second source told People magazine, Meg loves Justin. She was saying, no, 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 we've never met before. It was their first time meeting and she was excited. It's interesting because the words make sense in the context of the clip. You can see her saying, no, no, no. no, no. no. Exactly. But I was like, oh, that's not the, I don't know. I, I just, I couldn't see his face. I couldn't see the vibe and everyone mm. thought they were arguing. So I am intrigued. But if they could push this narrative out in 28 minutes, maybe it's the right one. Yeah, clearly I think the reps, the reps would have seen this video and gone, oh, it looks bad, but we know it wasn't. Otherwise they wouldn't be so quick and so emphatic. Yeah. The shutdown. And, and how would you come up with the, the fake quote <laughs> is how I'm thinking. Like, that's pretty quick thinking if it's not true. That's the only thing I can't stop thinking about. But I'm sure this video is still going to be shared far and wide. Well, I just don't believe that Megan the Stallion loves Justin Timberlake. So I'm trying to hold two things to be true, right? Like, maybe Megan feels neutral about Justin, but the quote's like, she loves Justin. They've never met. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently, according to this, they haven't. Anyway, on the VMAs, very quickly, Taylor Swift won nine awards. Insane. Including the biggest awards of the night, which is Video of the Year and Artist of the Year. Just crazy. She kind of swept the whole pool and there aren't many uh, other people to talk about. <laughs> I Spice won Best New Artist. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick one before the next segment, guys. This one may be triggering for some listeners as we do touch on sexual violence and sexual assault. If you or a loved one are struggling, call 1-800-RESPECT. All right, guys, this is one of the biggest celebrity stories of the year. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis have been exposed this week for advocating for their friend, Danny Masterson. Now, Danny is a convicted rapist who has been sentenced to 30 years behind bars. That was the maximum possible sentence for his crimes. Zara, before we get into the letters that Ashton and Mila wrote and then their subsequent apology, let's head right back how do Ashton and Miller know Danny Masterson? All right. So as we know, Danny was a star of that 70s show and that's how he met both Ashton and Miller. They co-starred on the show alongside him. That 70s show ran from 1998 to 2006. And this was pretty much when Danny Masterson was at the peak of his television fame. And it's around this time that it's now been found that he sexually assaulted two women at his Hollywood Hills home. These incidents occurred between 2001 and 2003. And the jury did hear testimony that he had given these women drugs before he assaulted them. Yeah. Now, to be clear, three women actually appeared in this case accusing Danny Masterson of rape. He was found guilty of assaulting two of the three women. The third accuser's allegations were declared a mistrial and prosecutors say they don't plan to retry that case. Yeah. Now, what's important to note here is the Church of Scientology was heavily referenced mm. throughout the trial because Masterson and all three accusers were members of the church in this 2001 to 2003 period. The women claim that it took them years to come forward with their allegations because the church actively discouraged them from doing so. The court heard that Scientology officials actually told one survivor that she would lose her membership if she didn't sign an, an NDA and accept a payment of about $400,000 in USD, mm. according to prosecutors. So this is why it's taken so long to come out, because if there's anything we know about the Church of Scientology is that they like to keep things to themselves. Yes, and all three women are no longer members of the church now. Now the Church of Scientology has also vehemently denied those claims and said they shouldn't have been involved in the trial at all and they had nothing to do with it. For the two rapes he was convicted of, and now 47-year-old Danny Masterson will be in prison until he's an old man. While we're on Danny as a character... 
I do think the listeners will find it interesting that when these rapes occurred, he actually moonlighted as a DJ with the name DJ Donkey Punch. Now, I learned what Donkey Punch meant in a viral video that was doing the rounds on social media this week. Have you guys seen it? No. I only learned this week as well. I had no idea. Yeah. So that was his name. And Donkey Punch is a term that refers to something quite horrific. So I will say, if you want to skip this, if it's going to be triggering for you, please fast forward about 30 seconds. A donkey punch is where you inflict blunt force trauma to the back of the head or lower back of your sexual partner during anal or vaginal sex as an attempt to induce involuntary tightening of the anal sphincter muscles or vaginal passage of the receiving partner. So it's literally referring to sexual violence. And that was the name he was using when these rapes occurred. And that was the name he stopped using in 2010. Yeah, so that's Ashton and Miller's friend, Danny Masterson. And we know they're good friends because at the top of this segment we mentioned they wrote letters to the judge of the trial asking for leniency when it came to Danny's sentencing. One thing you need to know about these letters is that keep in mind these were written after Danny Masterson was found guilty of raping two women. Mm. So it wasn't sort of submitted to the court. These letters weren't submitted to the court vouching for Danny before he'd been found guilty These were letters that were submitted after he'd found guilty, telling the judge, perhaps he doesn't deserve as much jail time as you'd think, essentially in real layman's terms. Yes. And the only reason the public now has access to these letters is because they were leaked. They were first shared online by legal affairs journalist Megan Cuniff, who posted them on her blog, essentially. She does a lot of reporting around the legal system and she actually somehow got scans of these documents and just put them up online and then they essentially caught fire on Twitter. Yes, exactly. We're going to read you snippets from these letters. We'll start with Ashton Kutcher's, right? Because he opened his letter describing himself as an actor, investor, philanthropist, and most importantly, a father who had been friends with co-worker and role model Danny Masterson for 25 years. He wrote, Danny has been nothing but a positive influence on me. He's an extraordinarily honest and intentional human being. Over our 25-year relationship, I don't ever recall him lying to me. He's taught me about being direct and confronting issues in life and relationships head on, resolving them and moving forward. As a role model, Danny has consistently been an excellent one. I attribute not falling into the typical Hollywood life of drugs directly to Danny. Anytime we were to meet someone or interact with someone who was on drugs or did drugs, he made it clear that that wouldn't be a good person to be friends with. And for me, that was such an implication that if I were to do drugs, he wouldn't want to be friends with me, which is something I would never want to risk or jeopardise. I am grateful to him for that positive peer pressure. He also set an extraordinary standard around how you treat other people. Hmm. Ashton also wrote that while he knew his friend had been found guilty, I hope that my testament to his character is taken into consideration in sentencing. I've got to say, I think that mentioning of drugs and how Danny was Mm. so influential in keeping Ashton away from drugs is a fascinating inclusion given the judge did find that Danny drugged two women to sexually assault them. Let's talk about Miller's letter. She described Danny as a dear friend and older brother figure. She wrote, from the very beginning, I could sense his innate goodness and genuine nature. Throughout our time together, Danny has proven to be an amazing friend, confidant, and above all, an outstanding older brother figure to me. His caring nature and ability to offer guidance has been instrumental in my growth, both personally and professionally. She went on, Danny has consistently displayed a profound sense of responsibility and care for those around him. He demonstrates grace and empathy in every situation, be it within the entertainment industry or in our personal lives. His warmth, humour and positive outlook on life has been a driving force in shaping my character and the way I approach life's challenges. I think a couple of things here for me actually mean um, more than a couple. A million things, A couple of things immediately that I want to say is that Miller and Ashton later on said that they didn't intend to undermine the victims in their pursuit for justice. We just wanted to kind of write a letter about our relationship with Danny Masterson. But I'm not entirely sure how you can say that and not directly undermine these women 
with the quote, he demonstrates grace and empathy in every situation because we know definitionally he does not demonstrate grace and empathy in every situation because he's mm. just been found guilty. Mm. So is that actually betraying the fact, dare I say, you don't think he did it? If you think that in every situation, and that's her wording, mm. he demonstrates grace and empathy? I think this speaks a lot actually to the monster myth when it comes to sexual assault. This myth that the men who rape women are hiding in dark alleyways and it is impossible for our friends and the people we love, the men we love, to rape women. Mila Kunis in that sentence is implying that she knows how Danny Masterson behaves in every situation with every person. Yeah. And I think that gets to the heart of the problem here, that just because you have good dealings with a man does not mean every woman has good dealings with that man. And I think this really speaks to an issue we have with rape culture in general, that we assume because we love someone that they are incapable of doing something that we know a lot of men do, not the majority, but a decent proportion of men are capable of. I just find it fascinating that you could say that. He demonstrates grace and empathy in every situation. You don't know him in every situation. Well, no, we actually also know that's not true because we know there's situations where he he hasn't done that because he's been convicted of rape and they know that to be true too. Well, so she doesn't believe it. Yeah, that's why I'm, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I, I don't think you must, I don't think you can believe that judgment if that's the wording you're coming out with. I mean, amongst all the other wording. And it actually reminds me, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but I remember um, when there was a lot of talk in Australian politics around Christian Porter, mm. our former attorney general, and his friend and political journalist, Peter Van Onselen was on Insiders, I think. And he was asked about, the historical allegations of, of rape against his friend. And he said, you know, something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, at a macro level, you want these stories and women to be believed, but at a micro level, it's, it's very, very hard when it's your friend. Mm. And I remember all the women on that show, I think Annabelle Crabb was on that show, just jumping at it to be like, that's exactly what we've been shouting out this entire time. You can't believe the macro if you're so tied to the micro, if you find it so hard to believe that people you know would do things like this. Mm. And I just that quote has stuck in my head ever since then to describe the relationship that people have with men who do terrible things. Yeah. I mean, Ashton and Miller weren't the only ones to write character reference letters to the judge. More than 50 loved ones did, including a couple of other celebrities. Some fellow That 70s Show co-stars wrote letters as did the actor William Baldwin, the brother of Alec Baldwin. There was also a letter from Danny Masterson's wife, Bijou Phillips, who described him as an extraordinary husband. I think it's probably worth noting that at least a handful of these people, maybe many of these people, are Scientologists. We know for a fact that one co-star, Giovanni Rabisi, is. I mean, it definitely makes me wonder what, Ashton and Miller's relationship with the Church of Scientology might be because I've been racking my brain as to why why they would write these letters. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think when you read these letters in full, it's it's hard to understand how they have such a really tight, close-knit relationship to the point where Miller considers him an older brother figure. They're not part of the same religion. And I don't say that because um, it's impossible for people from different religions to be that close. Mm. That's not the case. But with Scientology, Scientologists definitely sort of... You're in... You're in Sorry, this, the bosom of Scientology yeah, you're or in, you're not. Yeah, and it, it's they're such divisive beliefs yes. that I can imagine it would be very hard to have these deeply intimate relationships where you share the same values if you're not from the same church in this specific case. And so much of the letters speak to role model, showing me the way, like encouraging me to be a better person. So much of it is that like self-development rhetoric that I just find fascinating. I know people online have said this uses a lot, like these letters do reference Scientology language a lot. I can't say whether that's accurate or not accurate. I, do, I don't know what that's necessarily referring to word by word. But I do know there's an overriding sense of he was a mentor to us. And that feels interesting when it's friends. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about the church to know whether that language is true or not or if it's just general language you mm. use for someone that you love. But it is a really interesting thing to note. I mean, obviously, when these letters were leaked, the public outrage was intense. Twitter and TikTok were practically on fire. I think of particular interest as well is that Ashton has definitely made himself the face of ending child sex trafficking. He is the co-founder of an initiative called Thorn, which does seek to protect children and end child trafficking. So people are naturally looking at this thinking, well, 
This behaviour is so deeply at odds with the kind of person you purport to be. We should also note that the third accuser, the one we spoke of before, whose allegations were thrown out because of a mistrial, is named Chrissy Bixler. She accused Masterson of raping her in December 2001. And she's been sharing a lot on social media about Ashton in particular. She started sharing videos, you know, old videos where he's said some pretty gross things, including this comment about a then 15-year-old Hilary Duff. And this is the quote. She's one of those girls that we're all waiting for to turn 18, along with the Olsen twins. Yeah, worth noting as well that he was an adult when those comments were made and he's saying it about a 15-year-old. In another clip, he tells a television host that he and Danny Masterson had a bet over who could, and I quote, French kiss, a then 14-year-old Mila Kunis. So it's interesting evidence to have on someone who tries to portray themselves a certain way. I think it really speaks to maybe who Ashton Kutcher's character is, not only that we have these videos of him, but that he's willing to stand by a predator and defend him as if this predator is a stand-up guy. Now, obviously, all of this was being shared on socials when Ashton and Miller and their PR team decided they needed to release an apology video. We're going to play you a snippet of that video now. I think it's worth noting this was given in front of a nondescript wall with no makeup on, very plain clothing. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read and we're sorry. What are our thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I do find it interesting that they have come out and said, oh, well, these were intended for the judge to read, Mm. which essentially to me translates to, oh, but we never intended anyone to find out about this. Yeah. I find, and (laughs) makes me roll my eyes so much because it's just essentially two incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful individuals saying, oh, well, we're here because we thought this was going to be a secret. And now it's not a secret. So we guess we have to talk about it in this incredibly scripted performative apology. Yeah, there was a really interesting piece in The Intelligencer from Eric Levitz that I'll actually pop in the show notes that does a really good analysis of this apology video. But I found this quote from Eric really interesting. He wrote, in their apology video, Kunis and Kutcher legalistically avoided affirming Masterson's guilt. The couple said that they did not mean to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling, but avoided saying that they do not question the truth of the victim's allegations. This refusal to endorse the veracity of the proven allegations against Masterson was surely intentional. Kunis and Kutcher have been working with their friend's legal team, which intends to appeal his conviction. Mm. Now, when Levitt says has been working with their friend's legal team, I think they're just like speculating Mm. that that's why. But I found that fascinating because it's true. At not one point do they say, we believe these women, do Mm. we believe this is true? They're very specific and particular with their wedding. Yeah. I think one conversation that has naturally erupted on the back of this story is the question, is it excusable to write a character reference letter for your friend or loved one who has been convicted of a crime or crimes like these ones? And I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that because I I would like to think about myself that if one of the men in my life was found guilty of two separate rapes of women, I would not be writing a character reference letter for them. I just don't think I would be doing that. And it's interesting to see people on social media, a minority, I will say that, but some people on social media say, well, wouldn't you do the same for the friends in your life? No, I wouldn't do the same for the friends in my life. It's a hard question because I think when it's phrased so generally, like, would you write a character reference for a friend or loved one who's committed a crime? I mean, I would need the specific scenario. But if we're using this as the specific scenario, no, I don't think – I can't get my head around why they've done this. I I truly cannot. I can get my head around the fact that they – clearly didn't think he was capable of these things and are clearly dealing with some internal shit mm. about the, how the man they know is maybe not the man other people know. I can understand that would be in a deeply discombobulating experience mm-hmm. and we'd be fools if we didn't say that we would all struggle with that too. But it is that next level of – or 400 levels above that of going to the court and writing this letter and I can't stop thinking about 
the power they yield in this scenario. I know that they're one of 50 people, but how powerful their names are in this case. And I'm not saying by any stretch that a judge is going to read a character reference and say, ooh, Ashton Kutcher. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying you do have a lot of power socially. And for these women, when this was eventually leaked, to see that the most powerful people, some of the most powerful people in the industry sided with Danny Masterson, who also still had more power in this scenario, mm. is just like a really terrible thing to behold. I just don't even have words. I think this is one of the most disappointing celebrity stories we might have ever covered on Shameless. And there's something that feels like a deep sense of betrayal with this for two people who speak about child trafficking so much to have done this privately. I think they hope to do this privately. It just feels so at odds with what they've been preaching. And I can't excuse it. It's one of those stories where I can't actually find any grey area here to make sense of it or to give them the benefit of the doubt. I love giving people the benefit of the doubt because I feel like we often don't do it enough. But this is one of those stories where I don't have that in me. Danny Masterson has tried to tell us who he is for so long. How do their character reference letters make sense when they know that this is a man who went by DJ Donkey Punch for for a decade? How did they I, I wrangle what, with that? I think I, I'm I'm stupidly confuddled by this because I agree with you. I desperately want to give people the benefit of the doubt and I desperately want to find, to kind of work out what their motivations are. But in this case, it's flawed me because I can't. Like I actually can't see one iota of logic in any of this beyond no. them just being pretty average people themselves. Yeah. I think one quote from the prosecution's closing arguments has really stuck with me all week. They said, like all predators, the defendant carefully sought out his prey. The church taught his victims that rape isn't rape, that you cause this, and above all, you aren't allowed to go to law enforcement. What better hunting ground? In Scientology, the defendant is a celebrity and he's untouchable. I think we're going to leave it there. I know there was a lot to cover. In fact, I know we weren't even able to cover all of it because there's so much there. But thank you so much to everybody for listening. It's nice to be back in the studio. You know what to do to support us. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Come follow us. We are on TikTok at Shameless underscore podcast. Come follow us. Yes. And what else am I supposed to say? We're on all the podcasting apps. (laughs) Follow us there as well. Annabelle Louie, anything to add? No. 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 Guys, have a good week. We can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode on Your Safe Friday because I know there will be so many thoughts. So please come and talk to us. Bye. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly, style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.